I'm Becca, and you're listening to Tour Guide Tell All. We're your neighborhood-friendly tour guides here to share with you some scandalous and interesting bits of American history. I'm joined today by Rebecca. Hello. <laughs> and our very special guest, Caitlin. Say hi, Caitlin. Hi. Who we'll introduce in a moment. But first and foremost, we want to thank you guys for tuning in. If you've been listening to this month's episodes, you know that this is a very, very special month. August 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. So in all of our episodes this month, we have been focusing on the fight for women's suffrage, these incredible women who fought tooth and nail uh, to get the vote in the United States. We've talked about some of the famous figures, some of the lesser known figures, and today we're going to sum it up and really talk about how this amendment came to be and the really dramatic kind of nail biter that became the ratification of the 19th Amendment. And to do this, Rebecca and I are joined by somebody that we admire greatly, someone that we're a huge, huge fans of, and hopefully we can call her a friend of the pod. I think so, right? Friend of the pod? Of course. And that is our dear friend, Caitlin, who is the founder and CEO of A Tour of Her Own, uh, a tour company here in Washington, D.C. that focuses on women's history. And I have to say, before Caitlin tells us a little bit more about Toho, that you were in the game talking about women's history and sharing women's stories long before the 100th anniversary and the centennial and all these celebrations. So that's one of the things I love about having you as a colleague and a friend is that you were kind of pushing, sharing women's stories, I think a little ahead of the curve. Um, but tell our listeners a little bit about Toho and about you and about, about everything. My name is Caitlin. I'm the founder of A Tour of Her Own, and we elevate women's stories in American history and culture. We're based in Washington, D.C., and we are super excited for the centennial of the 19th Amendment. This topic is a huge focus of women's history, and there's so much to dive into. So thank you for having me on Tour Guide Tell All. We are so excited to have you here. And I think that for me, I was sort of resistant a little bit as a tour guide to talking about suffrage in that I feel like that's a topic in women's history that's kind of like the okay one to talk about. Like if you're going to study women's history, you're going to study suffrage. And that's it. So for a while, I felt like I was a little more resistant, like, I'm going to talk about other things and I want to, you know, shine a light on other women. But doing this series, leading tours with you and a tour of our own, it's really opened my eyes to how complex and layered and interesting, not just the fight for suffrage, but really the, the hundred years that lead up to the 19th Amendment, which we've talked about a little bit in our last three episodes. Uh, Rebecca, how are you feeling as we approach August of 1920. Um, excited? I'm feeling like I haven't been born yet, but other than that, I'm good. Um, August of 1920, I'm so excited. The Our previous episodes to catch everybody up, we started with Elizabeth Cady Stanton at the beginning of the month, and we talked about the first sort of wave of uh, suffrage activity, the Seneca Falls Convention. We then talked about Lucy Burns and Inez Mulholland, uh, two women who were contemporaries of the period we're going to talk about now. Inez Mulholland dies a little bit before suffrage, but that's neither here nor there. 
and uh, they're going to be sort of more radical, pushing towards the 19th Amendment. And then last week, uh, we did a, an episode about Ida B. Wells, who was a journalist and an African-American suffragist. She was very involved in anti-lynching campaigns and uh, the fight for women's suffrage. And so she's going to be a great entry point to talk about the experience of women of color uh, as far as suffrage is concerned, that the movement has not always taken the needs of women of color into account uh, in the fight for suffrage and indeed after the fight for suffrage was over with. So those are kind of been our three perspectives. And now we're on the cusp of actually doing this. And we talk about the 19th Amendment. I would like to mention, we know it's the 19th Amendment now. They didn't know that then. Like there could have been another one they slipped in there. <laughs> so I want to start, I think, with the sort of immediate ramp up. We've had the Women's March in 19, uh, 1913. Wilson, who is not a fan of suffrage, and I am well known up on this pod as being not a fan of Wilson for a number of reasons, but he's in the White House and we're doing this final push towards uh, women's suffrage. So that's kind of where I wanted to start with this lead up to 1918, 1919. Caitlin, do you have anything to add in terms of what it's like as we're building up to this moment in terms of how it's been that decade leading up to this big turning point? Yeah, I, I want to go back because you mentioned when we share women's history, how dynamic and complex it is. And I think that there's an opportunity that when we talk about the suffrage movement to highlight that true complexity and the depths of the women themselves, because we often identify them as suffragists, but they also were abolitionists. They also were pacifists. This is entering into uh, World War One, which played a huge role in how women were feeling. You know, the country was at war. Women wanted the right to vote, to have a say in who's serving. Uh, women are just beginning to enter Congress and elected roles because I think what we have to remember in leading up to the 19th Amendment is that women in parts of the country and territories out West did already have the vote and it was sort of a different culture in those places and the, the fight to get it federally recognized really took from those different experiences and pulled them all together into one, one unified movement. But of course we see how that splinters from time to time. So a lot to consider. And I think there's excitement leading up, but also like you said, excitement in those final months, those 14 months from when it went through Congress all the way to the final ratification in Tennessee. Well, I'm so, and I'm so glad you mentioned the Western states because we think about this as being when women get the vote, but there were women who were voting and had done very successful grassroots activism in their states to fight for the vote. And as important as this federal amendment is, I think it's important that we acknowledge that work that was happening and that, that incredibly successful drive that had happened out West. And it also is worth mentioning, and we're going to talk about this a little bit, there's a strong movement against suffrage, so the anti-suffrage movement. And one of their planks, and they had a few, but one of them is that Western states have this, we should do this state by state. We don't need a federal amendment for this. Wyoming's done it. A lot of these Western states, Wyoming to this day is the equality state for this reason. And so the idea was we should leave this to the states. This does not need a federal amendment. Yeah, I think often when we think about this movement and voting rights, we hear the term, oh, uh, they gave women the right to vote. And we always say no one 
gave it to women. They earned it. It's like nails on the chalkboard to me when someone says that. Yeah, it really is. And the other thing, too, if we talk about this centennial, recognizing 1920, really 1919, 1920 as the date, but the struggle was so long before that. And to your point, Rebecca, it wasn't like everyone just showed up one day and said, we all want this, and there's two sides. There were the people approaching it from a state perspective, the people lobbying through legislation, the people more taking an activist approach and those kinds of tactics. So it's, it's really very extreme and multifaceted. Yes, 100%. So to move us forward a little bit, a lot of this also gets derailed by the First World War. So we're making, women are making progress. They're getting further and further along. The United States stays out of the First World War for a while. But then Wilson, once we get into the war, he sort of puts all these social issues on the back burner. And it is not the first time, nor is it the last time, that social movements will be sidelined in favor of some kind of a, a military thing. So now, finally, the war is over. Yay. We win, which is also very good. And we had a flu pandemic too, it's worth mentioning. I know, everything is old as new again. And finally, we're ready to sort of move forward with this amendment and it goes through Congress. So Becca, do you want to talk about the drama of the congressional fight? Uh, Yeah, I think it's just worth mentioning that this isn't the kind of thing that by the time it gets to the House floor that everybody's sort of in favor of, there are really, really dramatic congressional tussling over what is now the 19th Amendment. It passes the House in 1918 literally by one vote. It gets taken to the Senate, and then it falls two votes short, and then it goes back and forth and back and forth. So over this span of 18 months or so, it's going to be five times that this gets voted on unsuccessfully. And each time it's really within just a matter of a couple of votes. So it's a really divided issue. President Wilson, who really through most of this has not been a fan of women's suffrage, has this kind of change of heart as it were, mostly because he's facing a challenging midterm election. And he will actually go to the Senate and make an appeal on the Senate floor, which is not something the President of the United States does very often. And he says, shall we admit them only to a partnership of suffering and sacrifice and toil and not to a partnership of privilege and right? And he sort of ties the need for this vote to this idea of the nation united as part of the war effort. So this is a really, to me, sort of insane legislative process of these back and forth votes. And then finally, 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 in May of 1919, it will pass the House by a vast majority, uh, 304 to 89, and then it will come to the Senate that summer. Now, when it comes to the Senate, there's still a big opposition from Southern Democrats. They're going to actually filibuster on it, but they'll abandon that filibuster and it will just barely pass through the Senate. So 56 yeses to 25 nays, which is not a big margin. It's pretty tight. And so we finally get this through Congress in the summer of 1919. And I have to also mention someone we've talked about in other episodes, which is Alice Paul, founder of the National Women's Party. She and Carrie Chapman Katz are working very, very hard during these 18 months to lobby. Uh, Alice Paul sees the National Women's Party as not just a group of women fighting for suffrage, but as a political 
political lobbying organization. And Alice Paul takes the lobbying very seriously. She keeps index cards on every member of Congress, their spouses, their family, anything she can use to sway them, anything they need to know. And they are constantly writing letters. They're constantly writing editorials in local newspapers. They're really calling these members of Congress to the carpet when it comes to this vote. So this doesn't just happen in Congress in a vacuum. There are a group of women who are working very hard as political lobbyists to get this through. That's something I think that gets lost in history, just how long the vote on this took, a year and a half, which seems like a lot, considering everything that had happened from kind of 1913, the suffrage parade up to 1919. You sort of think public opinion turns and it passes, but it was still a big political fight. And it also is worth mentioning, Alice Paul is so smart as far as the putting the pressure on legislators and senators. And it's really interesting how much the fight for women's suffrage is informed by the fight for temperance. Prohibition is happening at almost the exact same moment. And the pressure group that leads to temperance is called the Anti-Saloon League, led by a, a man named Wayne Wheeler, who does exactly the same thing with Congress that Alice Paul does. He keeps files. He knows their pressure points. He knows every single pulse in Washington, inside of the city, he knows where to go and how to get there. And so she's going to borrow a lot of that machinations and sort of legislative savvy from the temperance movement. And so there's this great back and forth and they're happening. The, the 18th amendment, which is banning alcohol, which is a very bad idea. Uh, that is going to be ratified in January of 1919. It goes into effect exactly a year later. So we're right in the middle of the fight for women's suffrage. And it's really interesting how very linked they both are. And of course, to be an amendment, you don't just pass Congress. That would just make you a regular old piece of legislation. Uh, our framers in their wisdom said, if you want to amend our constitution, you have to pass through Congress and then be ratified by three quarters of the current states. So just because this passes Congress doesn't mean Alice Paul, uh, the National Women's Party and Carrie Chapman Catt with NASA can just sit back. They immediately start mobilizing on the state level and they start going back to these grassroots organizers, going back to all these people that had been fighting in the state and local level so that they can get this through the state legislatures. I just want to note when we think about this time period, how influential trains were at the time that women, you know, of course there are centralized points. So they're in Washington, DC. A lot is happening in New York and some of the major cities, but the suffragists and the women at this time are on trains and they're traveling from city to city to try and get out there to give their speeches, to mobilize, to reach those grassroots activist groups. And, and I think that we have to consider these advances in this kind of technology or industrial um, machinery, really, when you think about women's rights and more access to connecting with each other. Yes, I think that's super important. People are mobile. Women are able to be mobile in a way that they had not been before. And now it is time for something we love, which is a little constitutional lesson. So under the Constitution, you need three quarters of the states to ratify an amendment. Today we have how many states? 50. So that would be 38 states, as we all know from trying to ratify the ERA. Back then, we only had 48 states. Hawaii and Alaska haven't joined us yet. So we need 36 states to ratify, which is a tall order, even in the best of circumstances. So it passes in 1919, and all of a sudden, the women's groups look around and they think, wait a second, 
1920 is coming. And 1920 is a presidential election year. So we've got a hard deadline we want to get to because we don't want women to just vote for dog catcher in their local town. They want the big enchilada. We want to be able to vote for president. Well, that's going to happen in November of 1920, whether this amendment has passed or not. And so that's going to set up this entire year of Alice Paul, Carrie Chapman Cat going out throughout the country. And they're mobilizing, but the anti-suffrage groups are mobilizing as well. And they get started a little slower, it must be said, but there is a very strong group of not just women, but women and men who don't want this to happen. They either want it on the state level or preferably not at all. Women shouldn't have the vote. There's a lot of people who believe that it won't work out well for women. There's a lot of also racist and very coded language. If you allow women to vote, it's not just white women. You're going to have women of color. You're going to have African-American women predominantly, immigrant women voting. This is all very bad. You're going to accelerate women leaving the home. Women are going to become workers. They're going to be involved politically. They may clutch your pearls here, everyone. They may run for office. And so this is sort of the anti-argument. The first few states, whenever you have a, uh, an amendment, you're going to have a bunch of states that ratify very quickly, particularly Western states who women already had the vote, so it wasn't a big deal for them. And the first dominoes fall pretty quickly, and then it gets harder and harder and harder, and the wheels start coming off the wagon by mid-1920. And to speak just sort of broadly, when we're looking at sort of how this ratification is divvying up across the country, as you mentioned, the Western states, for the most part, will fall in line and ratify states like Illinois with a very strong suffrage lobby in Chicago. You have New York, naturally, with Seneca Falls and kind of the birth of this wave of the women's movement. But speaking sort of broadly, it's the South, right? It's Southern Democrat, Southern Democratic governors, Southern Democratic congressmen. But it's not just the Deep South. I think a lot of people, when they think about how this map would break out. They think about everything south of Virginia or south of North Carolina, but there's fights all the way up through the Mid-Atlantic uh, and up along the eastern seaboard. So it's, it's on the east coast as well, although we tend to characterize it as just being in the South. And it is, it's complex. There's the anti-suffrage argument weaves in xenophobia, it weaves in racism and sexism. And this is also a time, and we've touched on this in other podcast episodes, where the right to vote is being restricted even for the people who have it at this time. We're starting to see, even though we have the 14th and 15th amendments, we're starting to see restrictions on the rights of men of color. Uh, and so it makes sense that they're not gonna wanna extend additional rights under a new amendment. So this is happening at a very interesting time in our history and a really kind of a turning point moment. down to Tennessee. Why does it end up being Tennessee? Combination of things. By the summer of 1920, 35 states have ratified, which is one shy. Of the remaining 13 states, eight of them have actually passed a non-ratification. So they've said, we don't want this. And they've actually, in their legislative session, said, nope, we're not doing this. So that leaves five. Three of those states are going to duck it. They're just not going to, not taking it up. 
We'll deal with it next year, which obviously next year will be too late. It comes down to Tennessee and North Carolina. And North Carolina is not looking that great. Basically, if this is going to happen, if it's going to happen in 1920, if women are going to get the vote for the fall, Tennessee is the last stand. This is like the shootout at the OK Corral. Like it's come all the way down to Tennessee. And it's worth mentioning, by the way, that this is a special session of the Tennessee state legislature. The governor actually calls the legislators back into session. So normally, even today, most state legislatures, they meet for like six, seven, eight weeks, and then they go back to their other jobs. There's a few states like California and Texas that are very large that are going to have full-time legislatures. That's their only job. But even today, most state legislatures are made up of men and women who have an entirely separate career. That's obviously going to be even more true in 1920. You have all men and they have lives. This is the middle of the summer. They've got farms and law offices and whatever else it is they do. And they don't really want to be interrupted in the course of their summer to come to Nashville and deal with this. So that's the other backdrop that you've got. Also, alcohol has just been made illegal and so there's no legal alcohol either, which is, if you know anything about politics, it's fueled by great quantities of liquor. So you've got prohibition, you're in the middle of the hot summer, no air conditioning. All of the whole world is basically descending on Nashville. The suffragists, the anti-suffragists, they're all coming from all over the place. And then all the press and the media, just the eyes turned here. People who come just out of pure curiosity to see what's going to happen. It really is a bit of a circus. It's like the eye of Sauron just focuses on Nashville. Gosh, I'm in rare form tonight, aren't I? <laughs> That was, that was excellent. Uh, I will mention too, for our listeners, what makes Tennessee, I think, you know, when you're sort of like, it comes down to Tennessee and North Carolina, and there's sort of this back and forth of where to focus the energy and where do they think the vote will happen, that Tennessee is unique in that it has a Democratic governor, the Democratic Party at this time, not particularly supportive of suffrage, and yet their Democratic governor, Albert Roberts, is. So even though the state legislature is divided, he is this Democrat who supports ratification of the 19th Amendment, and he's willing to call this special session, which is how the die gets cast for this to be Tennessee. And it's it's a great stroke of luck, I think, to have this man who just happened to be an outlier in his party and in his state willing to call the session. And you also have two presidential campaigns that are going on at the same time. James Cox is running on the Democratic ticket. He is a pretty strong supporter of women's suffrage. And Becca, Caitlin, do you know who James Cox's vice president was? Tell us, Rebecca. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. <laughs> he was the vice presidential nominee. You probably know, listeners, we don't have a President Cox, so he does not win. No, yeah, we never had a President Cox. Imagine the political cartoons. That would have been outstanding. Anyway, uh, Harding, who does win, the Republican nominee, and he is more reluctant to support women's suffrage. Harding seems to be a man of questionable morals and, and not really, you know, flexibly. He's very flexible politically. And so he doesn't, I don't think, have a strong position but it seems to not really be in his political interest to support women. So he doesn't, he doesn't really have a strong, I think, a strong case either way. 
it's certainly the belief we know of Alice Paul at this time that if Harding wins, they're not going to have a strong advocate in the White House. So they feel that it's really important for women to get the vote before this presidential election. And the support for the National Women's Party, at least, is going towards Cox, the Democratic candidate, who at least at that time was publicly supporting suffrage, as opposed to Harding, who was unclear and reluctant, if nothing else. So certainly their estimation was that Harding would not be an advocate for suffrage if this fight continued past the presidential election. So the special session is called and it actually passes the Tennessee Senate pretty easily. The ratification passes the Senate. So it's it's all coming down to the House of Representatives. And the speaker of the Tennessee House is very much against women's suffrage. So he's very reluctant to deal with this. He did think he wants this all to go away. And he, he's going to try basically every tool that he can think of to delay this parliamentarily as long as possible. And eventually the lobbying has gone on for weeks and eventually he can't delay anymore. And we're going to come down to the House of Representatives in those days was 96 people, which is an even number, which means ties are possible, which is not ideal. And under Tennessee rules, a tie goes to no. So if they can't get to 48 plus one, it's not happening. And that's it. That's the last stand. Their women are out of luck. So it's really one of those moments in American history that just, it stands on a knife edge and you can almost like visualize, like put yourself in the Tennessee house. It's packed. There's no air conditioning. You've got women in the galleries. You have all the representatives are displaying their side by roses. So they're all obviously in suits and they are wearing a yellow or a red rose in their lapel to indicate which side they're going for. A red rose means you're against suffrage. A yellow rose means you're pro-suffrage. And it all comes down to this one day, August 18th, and the speaker has called the vote because he is certain the eyes do not have it. He's certain it is a 48-48 split, which means it isn't going to happen. And let me, let me mention here, one of the reasons I think he's so confident is because the rhetoric has taken a very intense turn. There's so much to dig into on what is said on the floor and in these speeches. Some of it is is actually very hard to read because it is some really hateful language. But uh, just a couple days prior, there had been a man named Herschel Candler who'd given this blistering speech and he really drags the suffragists through the mud. He basically just calls them all low class. He insinuates that they're prostitutes, that there's these childless whores. He says that these women are trying to trick the good women of Tennessee, that they're basically selling them a bill of goods. And Candler says, I am here representing the mothers who are at home rocking the cradle and not representing the low neck and high skirt variety. Because back then, if you had the low neck and the high skirt, you were the problem. But then he takes it even further. It's not just denigrating these women. He brings in that racial language, that racial earmongering, that if you give women the vote, Negroes are going to want to hold public office. These people support interracial marriage. They're going to come and they're, you know, the women are going to vote and then they're going to start marrying with blacks in the state. He says that they would drag the womanhood of Tennessee down to the level 
of the Negro. I mean, this is really incendiary stuff in 1920. He goes on to call Carrie Chapman Cat an anarchist, which is pretty, I think, aggressive. <laughs> Everything's kind of hanging in the moment. It really, really is. People are treating this as though it is life and death. He's not using coded language. No, this is not coded. This is, there's no dog whistle here. <laughs> He's coming right out and saying it, that if we give women the vote, African-American women will ha want the right to vote. And then African-American men exercise the right that they already have. And I think it, it's worth noting too, that that language does scare the suffragists it does scare some of the, the pros and they want so desperately for this to pass that they're even trying to sort of dance around it carrie chapman cat even after she's been called an anarchist she actually will speak to the press about candler's speech and she will basically say i'm not talking about interracial marriage that's a crime against nature i'm not talking about the wrong kind of people getting the vote we're talking about good upstanding christian women so it becomes a point of desperation too um where they're just so desperate to get this passed that even the suffragists are willing to say and do anything just to try to get that one extra vote they need in the Tennessee House. It's not like those words ended and lost all meaning either when the amendment was passed. That's the kind of rhetoric that sits in the minds and the hearts of people that want to believe it and carries on through decades beyond that and into the next generations. And when the vote is called, they don't have it. They know it. Everybody knows it. The speaker knows it. That's why he's calling the vote. They're at a tie. And all the legislatures, all the men are milling around the House, and they call the vote. And in the state legislature, in fact, the very youngest member of the Tennessee State House is a man named Harry Byrne. Harry Byrne is wearing on his lapel a red rose, which means that he is not in support of suffrage. However, Carrie Byrne kind of is in support of suffrage. Secretly, he feels that it's fair for women to have the right to vote, but he comes from a very rural area of Tennessee and they don't support it. And Harry Byrne really wants a career in politics. He wants to be governor someday. He's got big plans. And so that does not include being voted out of office in November. So he has made a bargain with himself that is, if it comes down to him, he will vote for it. And he even is going to tell Carrie Chapman Cat, my vote will not hurt you. And Carrie Chapman Cat hears this and is like, oh, okay, pal, like you've got the red rose. You're not in favor of what we're in favor of. And so he sits there. And now his name is Byrne, which is at the beginning of the alphabet. So he's one of the very first to vote. And everybody in the audience is expecting him to vote no. But it comes to him and Harry Byrne's sitting there and they call his name. And what does Harry Byrne, Becca, what does Harry Byrne have in his breast pocket? What he has is I think one of the coolest pieces of American history. And if I ever get a chance to see it and hold it in my gloved hands, I would be so happy. Oh my gosh. He has a letter from his beloved mother, Feb. <laughs> and what does the letter say? So just a little background about Feb. 
Feb was a college-educated woman, so a little unusual for her time, having had a chance to have gone to school and educate herself. She was a widow at this point, but her husband had started a, a hosiery sock factory. Uh, so they, they were comfortably middle class, upper middle class. She'd had a good life. She had all those privileges that many of the anti-suffragists are saying, why do we need the vote? We have husbands and good men to take care of us. But she saw as a widow that she didn't have a lot of political control and political influence. And she felt that her mind was equal to the mind of any man she had met. So she writes a letter to her son, Harry. And in this letter, she is going to just encourage him subtly, quietly, to consider this. This is not a passionate plea for the vote. It is not a, you must do this. It's not a diatribe. She's not an activist in that way. She just uses that sweet mother's gift of quiet manipulation and guilt to plant a seed in Harry's mind. So, you know, she just every so often in this letter drops in little tidbits. Hurrah and vote for suffrage and don't keep them in doubt. I noticed the other speeches, it was very bitter. So she sort of talks about this rhetoric these other men are using. I hope you see enough of politicians to know it is not one of the greatest things to be. <laughs> what say ye? So she's sort of saying, look, you shouldn't wanna be a politician. You should just do what's right now. These guys are bad dudes. And then my favorite, don't forget to be a good boy and help Mrs. Cat with her rats that being cat rat ratification. Is she the one that put rat in ratification? Ha, huh? no more from mama this time with lots of love. So she just signed up at the end, just drops in the be a good boy, which I just think is so sweet. So he has this letter and I can understand to an extent a politician being torn between their personal thoughts and representing their constituency, right? You are elected to serve your constituents. And so you've got Harry Byrne, and he knows what the people in his community think. He knows what he thinks. He knows what everyone's been saying and how significant this is. And he thinks he knows how he's going to vote. He has that red rose. And yet that letter from his mother will touch something inside of him. And when it comes to Harry Byrne, he votes I. And if you can imagine, everybody they've all done the calculations harry byrne is firmly on the no side so he switched his vote and this is a big deal now suddenly he's tied it all up so this is a whole different ball game and the whole chamber erupts in screaming and they're going through the rest of the legislatures down the alphabet and there's one other guy the the other linchpin of all this is a man named banks turner Turner begins with a T, so he's towards the end. He had been on the fence. They thought he was for suffrage, but they weren't really sure. And now Harry Burns brought them to a tie. Will Banks Turner pushed them over the edge? And so we're getting to a T. We're getting to down the alphabet. And they call his name, and he sits there. And he sits there. And they call it again, and they call it a second and a third time. <laughs> really milk in the moment. Milk in the moment. And after a few times, they move on. The next guy's named Vincent. They keep on going. Turner does not record a vote. So they get to the end and you're at a tie. And Turner, milking this moment for everything it's worth, is going to stand up right as they're about to end the vote. 
he's going to say, I wish to be recorded as voting I. And again, everybody in the room loses their mind. However, it's not done yet. At this moment, a legislator named Seth Walker, who is very opposed to women's suffrage. Seth Walker is a smart politician, though he understands procedure. And he decides he wants to change his vote from nay to I. Why does he want to do that if he's opposed to women having uh, the right to vote? He knows that he can move for reconsideration. It's a very, it's a tactic. What he wants to do is buy time by changing his vote to the winning side. He can claim to bring this vote back at any point in the next two days. So basically what he's doing is he's stalling for time. He's going to try to work on Harry Byrne. He's going to try to work on Banks-Turner, get them to change their vote. And so it seems like at first that the suffragists have won, that we've gotten this vote, that women have the right to vote. But Alice Paul and Carrie Chapman can't know it is too early yet to thank God. You need to keep pushing. And they keep doing it. And in fact, one of the things, Harry Byrne becomes the center of this very vicious attack by the anti-suffragists. They are going to talk about how he was bribed and in very vicious and not very kind terms, talk about how they have evidence that he's been bribed and that his vote was tainted at the last minute. And this comes back to bite them because it's exposed that they're clearly lying. I should say things are pretty dangerous for Harry Byrne in that immediate aftermath. The governor has to give him basically a guard, the sergeant at arms. He will basically escape the chamber, climb out of a window and shimmy onto a ledge so he can hide in the attic of the state library to stay away from the mob in the immediate aftermath. The wife of a former governor will go visit Feb and basically lecture her and say, you've got to get your son to get on board or bad things are going to happen to you. So not only are they kind of going after Harry, but they're going to his mother and preying on her love of her son and saying, look, your son, we can't guarantee his safety. He needs to really think about this. And of course, Feb, because she's amazing, she holds firm and she's just like, he did the right thing and I stand with him and everyone needs to just get on board. Feb's the best. She is such a great heroine. So a couple of days later, exactly what Seth Walker had hoped for, they're going to reconsider this vote. But Seth Walker realizes now with all of this anti-activity against Harry Byrne, they have firmly pushed Harry Byrne into the pro-ratification category. He ain't budging. There's no winning him back now. There's no winning him back now. And he's giving cover to the other guy, Banks Turner. So Seth Walker knows we're still at 49, 47. He doesn't have it. So he's going to postpone another couple of days to try to work this out. And eventually takes a few days, but they are able to end debate. The suffragists are going to move to adjourn and they end the session. And then it's time to celebrate. So it takes a week and there's this climactic vote. And what a lot of people don't realize is there's a climactic vote. And then everybody has to hold their breath to make sure it sticks for another few days. But it does. It's added into the Constitution about a week later and women are able to vote that November for president. So about 10 million women are going to go to the polls that November, which is about a third of the eligible female electorate. So there's an estimated three women voting for every five voting men. Women vote in every state except Mississippi, which is going to prevent even white women from voting. Uh, But women do show up to the polls 
unfortunately they elect Warren Harding, but what are you going to do? Um, <laughs> I, I like to mention Harry Byrne would read statements on the floor after all these accusations of bribery and wrongdoing and all of this. And he'll kind of write out this little statement that he wants read into the record. And I love it because it is the most mama's boy little statement ever. He says, I believe in full suffrage as a right. I believe we had a legal and moral right to ratify. I know that a mother's advice is always safest for her boy to follow. And my mother wanted me to vote for ratification. So no matter what he might have been weighing and considering prior to this, in this official statement, he really gives the weight of his mother's advice, which I think is so admirable and so lovely. And Feb even writes later in her life that she was so moved by the fact that her letter had so much influence on him, that she had written that letter as a mother does, but you don't know if your kids are going to do what you hope or what you suggest. And she was really touched and moved by that. I also feel obligated to mention that as much as women go to vote in the presidential election in November, at that point, there had already been some elections that women could vote in. And one of my favorite is actually in St. Paul, Minnesota. They basically decided as soon as this was ratified in Tennessee, they scheduled a special election on August 26th. So that's literally like days. And they're like, we're gonna have a special election. It's on a water bond bill. It's like a very small municipal matter. At 5 a.m. they open the polls and 80 women come to vote. So they claim in St. Paul, Minnesota that they had the first women to vote under the 19th Amendment by scheduling this little special election. So uh, that's my fun little tidbit of Minnesota trivia. And there were actually a couple of other special elections across the U.S. before the presidential election. But I think that presidential election is really such a great illustration of when women can vote, they show up to vote. Well, that's actually one of the things that Carrie Chapman Catt has to answer for after the election, because only a third of eligible women show up to vote. And the Carrie Chapman Catt has to answer from the press charges of, well, you know, we've given you the right, women have the right to vote, where were you? And Carrie Chapman Cat has to say, well, it's only, you only gave us 10 weeks. From the end of August to the beginning of November is not a lot of time. There's, can't register to vote online any, you know, back then. You have to mail something in. It's not, it's a more time consuming process. It slows down a lot of women. There are additional restrictions in some places. There's court challenges. But she also says voting is a learned behavior and women haven't learned how to do it yet. And that's what the League of Women Voters is going to help do for the next election is educate women how to exercise this new right. So Carrie Chapman Catt realizes that fight does not end with the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Now you have to protect it. Caitlin, in terms of the 19th Amendment and its ratification, when it's ratified and women have the vote, is that kind of the end of the story? Do you think, or where do women sort of go from there? Of course not. Well, maybe it's the end of one story, but the beginning of another, and certainly they're connected. So um, we see, just as you mentioned, Rebecca Carrie Chapman Catt is the founder or co-founder of the League of Women Voters, who are still very influential in politics today. And maybe not politics is the right word, but civic engagement and encouraging the vote. And uh, we also see the legacy of the Equal Rights Amendment, which has direct ties to the 19th Amendment, that story certainly goes all the way through the 1900s and to into this year, 2020. So the legacy continues. 
voting rights certainly uh, are all through the 1900s have been fought for, protested for, rallied, mobilized so that people can have a say. And also to point out, because we're based in Washington, D.C., women in Washington, D.C. didn't have the right to vote until the district <laughs> got their suffrage rights, I believe, in the 1970s. So it's it's nice to have a celebratory moment, but it's also good to acknowledge how there was still a lot of work to be done and and how that continued on. I am really glad you mentioned the Equal Rights Amendment. As you know, this is something that all of us, all three of us are, are very passionate about, and Rebecca and I certainly have mentioned the ERA in previous episodes, but the Equal Rights Amendment we tend to associate with its fight for ratification in the 1970s, but that was written by Alice Paul, National Women's Party, immediately after the 19th Amendment. She immediately goes, okay, we have the vote. What about all the other places in the law where we need rights and we need those rights to be defended by the Constitution. And so she does that as the immediate next step, and she's still alive in the 1970s, as is Harry Byrne. I think we tend to think of suffrage as this far-off thing in the past. It's hard for us to sometimes reconcile how close we are to this generation and this fight. So Harry Byrne, who we all love so much from this story, who goes on and he fights against poll taxes, he fights for increasing the polling stations, he's in favor of lowering the voting age to 18, and yet as we get to the 1970s, he finds himself kind of facing off against the National Women's Party because he is opposed to the Equal Rights Amendment, and it blew my mind, and uh, for listeners, I texted Caitlin and Rebecca immediately as I was reading about this, that this man who had been this deciding vote in 1974 and 1975, the last years of his life, was out there publicly rallying against the Equal Rights Amendment and basically arguing that it was an unnecessary appendage and that it would actually lead to a loss of rights for women. And so that arc of his life is amazing to me and fascinating, but also the fact that you had Alice Paul, who was there in Tennessee, and Harry Byrne, who was the vote, still alive and kicking and fighting in the 1970s, which is, you know, when my mom was alive. So it were not that many generations separated from this moment in history. And I hope that's a takeaway for people when they think about the 19th Amendment. Oh, yeah. And I also think it's worth mentioning that the 19th Amendment gives white women the right to vote. Absolutely. That's a very important African-American women uh, Latinx women, Native American women still did not have the right to vote. And so their enfranchisement is going to take a little bit longer. It's going to take into the 50s and 60s for a lot of these, particularly in the Southern states, a lot of these Jim Crow era laws uh, to be repealed so that African American women, Latinx women can exercise the right to vote in the Southern states. And like Caitlin mentioned, it is right up until the 70s when women in Washington, D.C., which is particularly back then a predominantly African American city, they finally got the right to vote for president. So it is a long and evolving process. And we celebrate and we should celebrate the ratification of the 19th Amendment, but it is also worth mentioning it's not complete. I'll add to that as well. I was reading a little bit more in depth about Dr. Mabel Lee, uh, Chinese American women, and they didn't have the right to vote until decades later. And in doing that research, I started realizing how many of the prominent suffragists 
were also doctors, Dr. Alice Paul, Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, the um, only woman to receive a Medal of Honor, Reverend Dr. Anna Howard Shaw. So when we think about these women and, you know, they were educated, they were aware, they were more than qualified to to have the vote. And it was just a matter of the right people getting on board and passing it at the right time. So where in D.C. can we see any evidence of the 19th Amendment, the fight for ratification? Where is it around here? We are so lucky in Washington, D.C. because we do have, I think, some really wonderful gems for women's history, particularly this fight for the 19th Amendment. Uh, The one that we always mention and bring up in every episode is the Belmont Paul, a women's national equality monument on Capitol Hill. This was the headquarters of the National Women's Party, although not their headquarters in 1920. This is where they'll move to during the fight for the ERA. But they have not just this incredible historic house, but they have the collection of the banners that these women used when they were picketing the White House the letters and documents and political cartoons. All of this is on display in a free public national park site, and it's phenomenal. Of course, closed currently for the pandemic, but highly recommend for anyone coming to visit. It is, to me, the mecca for women's history and for suffrage history, because it's all the real stuff these women used, and it's just beautifully represented. Uh, Another thing I definitely like to mention, and we did a little mini episode on this just a few weeks ago, but there's the portrait monument at the United States Capitol building. And that was given to the nation as a gift from the National Women's Party just six months after the 19th Amendment was ratified. So if you haven't listened to that episode, it's our episode on Adelaide Johnson. It's a beautiful monument to Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Lucretia Mott, three women who never lived to see the 19th Amendment passed or ratified. And so this monument was dedicated to honor them and to honor their sacrifice right after the 19th Amendment. Then it shunted off into the basement of the Capitol for many years and not put back on display until the 1990s. So sometimes it sounds cheesy or touristy to be like, go on a Capitol tour. But for me, it's worth it to go and see this incredible testament to the struggle for women and for equality in this country. What else, Caitlin? I know there's definitely some other good places. There are so many examples of women's suffrage in and around the city, and they sort of sneak up on you, and that's what I love. Now that you have your eyes open, I I hope the people listening will either go and seek this out or or stumble upon it, but I think most recently, one of the exciting additions downtown were the call boxes, which used to be used for emergency purposes and have been revitalized as artwork to share women's history specifically And Becca, you actually lead that tour for us, so I I won't give it all away. You can come on our tour, but three suffragists mentioned there, Alice Paul, once again, Julia Ward Howe, and Mary Church Terrell. And um, Mary Church Terrell has tons of history in the city as well. Down on 7th and F Street, just across from the Capital One Arena, excuse me, is Terrell Place, and it's an old department store that Mary Church Trail had a hand in integrating. And so there's a plaque for her there where you can visit. And another hidden gem is tucked away inside the JW Marriott Hotel, just off Freedom Plaza. And this is one that we stumbled upon because we have hosted some events there. But it is this absolutely beautiful, not quite a mural, I guess a photograph that spans the entire wall of the suffragists marching in the 1913 parade. And again, there are suffragists that we might not identify like that. Helen Keller was a suffragist, even though we don't quite think of her that way. She is uh, interred at the Washington National Cathedral. And so it's everywhere. 
I'd like to also shout out and mention something that was impacted by COVID, but that I hope will have a chance to happen soon, which is this year with the centennial was supposed to be the dedication of what's called the Turning Point Memorial in Aquaquan, Virginia. We mentioned Aquaquan in a previous episode, talk about Lucy Burns, because that is where the Aquaquan workhouse was, the prison, the Lorton prison, which has been turned into a museum and not very far from that museum site is this memorial a national memorial to suffrage and the women who sacrificed so much. It was supposed to be dedicated this year. And of course, because of the pandemic, it's not going to be, but I am really excited. I hope the three of us will road trip out there to see it when it's finally dedicated. It will have statues of Alice Paul, Terry Chapman Cat and Mary Church Terrell, among a lot of other really beautiful design elements. So in our show notes, we'll be sure to put a little information about that memorial. I'm very excited about that. There's also not in DC, but in New York City, in Central Park, a brand new memorial statue to suffrage that's being dedicated in Central Park, which is very exciting. This will feature Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Sojourner Truth. So kind of going to that generation that really set the flame of the fight for what will become the 19th Amendment. So more and more, we're starting to see, I think, some physical commemoration and remembrance. I have to mention Tennessee as well. Tennessee in Knoxville has a beautiful suffrage memorial that actually honors three women from Tennessee who were really pivotal in that fight and getting that vote passed in the Tennessee legislature. So we're based in DC. We talk about DC stuff, but if I can give everybody listening a tiny bit of homework, if you're not from DC, take a moment to see What's happening in your city, in your town? What what do you have there to honor the women who have shaped it and changed it and made it better? And the women certainly who are involved in 1920 getting the vote. There were supposed to be a lot of things happening this year. In our show notes, we will post an update with virtual events. The more we know, uh, we'll share with you. If you aren't already following us on Twitter at Tour Guide Tell, uh, we'll be sure to share as much as we can about the suffrage centennial. There's a lot of virtual events. Smithsonian, Library of Congress, National Archives, all are hosting great events and doing a lot of great stuff on social media. So we love them. Follow them. You're going to learn a lot about women's history that we didn't get a chance uh, to touch on here. Caitlin, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, a tour of her own and what they do uh, to honor not just suffrage history, but women's history as a whole? We have a rotation of walking tours. Most of them are about two hours, but they're all customizable. And while many of them do focus a little bit on suffrage, we venture out into other topics like women in theater. We look at uh, women on Capitol Hill from sort of a legislative perspective. We have a tour about women who have protested in various moments. And unfortunately right now, because of COVID-19, we are not promoting our museum tours, but we do have them. We go into the National Portrait Gallery, we go into the National Gallery of Art, but fortunately our tours are outdoors, so they are safe. They are a little bit of exercise as you're walking around. And we offer them, you can check out our website and see when we're offering them or inquire about a private custom tour for you and your friends. And we'll be sure to link to all of Toho's social media stuff in our show notes as well. So this, this is it. It's the, it's the centennial. It's a hundred years. It all literally came down to one vote, which sort of blows my mind. Can I share with you guys a story? Yes. Okay. So I vote whenever I can. I'd vote every day if they'd let me, but they don't. And I have a, a thing. I like to take my time. I don't like to be rushed. I read the whole thing. 
And I sit there and unfortunately, I don't think this year they're going to let me vote in person. I was going to do it whether the pandemic was happening or not, but I feel like DC is going to all mail in. Anyway, I sit there and I think about my grandparents, none of whom were with us anymore, but three of my grandparents, because I'm an old person, three of my grandparents were born before the passage of the, the ratification of the 19th Amendment. And so their mothers, who were all citizens of this country, could not vote. They were giving birth, they were paying taxes, they were doing normal citizen things, but they could not vote. And I think about how different my life is from my great-grandmother's in just 100 years, how much things have changed. And that's what I think about when I vote. I know that's cheesy, but we'll just go with it. <laughs> I love that. I love it. I love it. Uh, there's actually a bit of a, a social media campaign as part of Suffrage Centennial, uh, encouraging people to identify the first woman voter in their family. I love that that's something you reflect on essentially, right? Those women who were born before they had that right. I love that. That's a great story. And I would encourage everybody to learn your own her story or your own women's history within your family and learn of course, voting rights is a great conversation starter, but what did your grandmother, aunts, great aunts, where did they work? What was it like raising children during this time? You know, did they drive? Did they have a bank account? All of these things are really interesting details when you start uh, analyzing your own upbringing and your own life and your own roots. Could not agree more. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast, Tour Guide Tell All. I love all of your episodes. We're big fans and you're both just super knowledgeable about this stuff and we have to just keep sharing it to, to everyone out there. Caitlin, we are so glad to have you. Obviously, we talk about Toho all the time, uh, not the least of which because we lead tours with you, but also because we love you and we love what you're doing and the message of a tour of her own. And it's what we try to do with this podcast is really elevate these stories and these histories. We want to thank everybody who's listening uh, and everyone who tunes in to Tour Guide Tell All. If you like it, share it, subscribe, review. We love all of those things. And we love the most. Do you know who we love the most, Rebecca? We love our Patreon supporters the most. They are our favorites. They are a great support to us in these COVID times when we're not actually out there able to give tours. Uh, our Patreon supporters have been so wonderful. And if you want to become a Patreon supporter, search Patreon Tour Guide Tell All. If you want to interact with us, the best way, apart from being a Patreon supporter, the best way to support the pod is to tell people about it tweet at us, send our episodes to your friends. We really love the support. Like and review us on Apple or Spotify or whatever your podcast app is. That really does help get the word out. And so we're so grateful for people who support us. Don't be afraid to send us questions, comments. We'd love to hear your family, her stories. If you've discovered something interesting or fun about your family and the suffrage story, tweet us or tag us on Instagram. You can find us on Instagram now. Uh, but we want to hear from you, especially with our suffrage month, which is wrapping up. This is our last suffrage episode as we head into September. We have some really exciting things coming up. I don't want to spoil too much, but we're definitely going to be talking about sports. We're going to be talking about some serious scandals. We're going to be schooling you on the United States Constitution. And we're going to be tearing down some metaphorical statues, I think. Um, so that's all I will say. But September is going to be a rowdy month. Yeah, yeah. I think we're going to have an, a, a month of rowdy episodes. So thank you, Caitlin. Thank you, Caitlin. Yes, very much. And thank you to our listeners. 
So we will see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Tour Guide Tell All is brought to you by some of the fine guides at DC by Foot, one of the many cities covered by free tours by foot. And as we start to reopen cities, we are giving private tours. Please check us out at freetoursbyfoot.com. Tour Guide Tell All is Rebecca Grawl, Rebecca Fackner, Candon Arseniega, and me, Dan King.